From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxai, and this is ReSound. Writing is an important art. We have learned how to make marks on paper that tell what we're thinking about. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audible strands of memory we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then play you the best of what we hear each week. And we can use the magic of writing to send our thoughts to friends in any part of the world that tell others how we feel about them. Writers who mine their own lives in their work put themselves in a tight spot. On the one hand, the old saw, write what you know, happens to be excellent advice. First-hand experience is the most vivid and makes for some of the best storytelling. But on the other, how do you tell a revealing narrative that is intimate yet doesn't cross the line into exhibitionism? That is where nuance and a very careful balancing act come into play. Today on ReSound, we bring you the work of two very talented and fearless producers who are able to plumb the depths of their most personal and painful experiences without a trace of immodesty. These stories actually give something back to their audiences, and that's the highest compliment of all. Sophie Townsend and Sarah Burke Curtis, their work and conversation today on ReSound. Stay with us. So Sophie Townsend and Sarah Brooke Curtis actually found each other through Third Coast, and we are only too happy to be matchmakers. We shared Sophie's story about her husband's illness on our website and crowed about it on Twitter. That's how Sarah heard it and responded. The updates is beautiful. After creating out of my own grief, it's awesome to hear another version of raw radio. I'd like to hear that creation. Here's a few links to get you started. This is extraordinary. I wanted to get home before listening. I'm glad. Such beauty deserves space and time. Thank you for giving it the time and space. I really appreciate it. After seeing their thread, we wanted to hear more of their conversation with each other. And we wanted to give them the opportunity to meet, if not face-to-face, then at least voice-to-voice. And honestly, we wanted to listen in on their conversation. So we found a time, Thursday evening on the East Coast and Friday morning in Australia, to bring these two remarkable makers together. Hello. Hi, how are you? And then we eavesdropped as Sophie and Sarah became fast friends, having already listened to each other's work. Hang on. They got to talking about Sophie's piece, The Updates, which dove into a very difficult time. When Sophie's husband, Russell, was diagnosed with lung cancer, she became the family spokesperson, a difficult and overwhelming task. People's questions about his sickness left her reeling because the news she had to give them was rarely good. So she started the Russell Updates, a weekly email that laid it all bare for friends and family. The updates weren't just a way to keep everyone informed. But during our call, Sophie said they were also a way of working things out in her own head, and keeping herself afloat. I've always written my way out of trouble. Well, I'm exactly the same way. Like, I I have to write my way out of everything. Yeah, so I started writing. And then after he died, I had all these reams of material. And it felt to me very natural to record it and make sort of further sense of it by having it voiced and 
that's how I got this piece. Let's all listen to the story we first shared on our website, The Updates, by Sophie Townsend. Seventeenth of June, two thousand and eleven. Dear all, up until today, Russell and I have been seeing chest specialists in nicely kitted out private offices, trying to get this thing diagnosed. Most of you know that the news hasn't been great. So today we saw the oncologist at Gloucester House, RPA. We knew we'd entered a different sort of space. That hospital smell, the crazed admission staff, and the unwell wrapped in headscarves their faces twitching with tension and exhaustion that we instantly recognised. Doors closing. Level three. Going up. Well, said Russell, this is where the rubber hits the road. He looked calm. I had to go to the bathroom to put my head between my knees to stop a panic attack. There was, of course, a queue. Chemo starts on Thursday, and we feel okay about it because there's finally something happening, with dates and times and steps to be taken. We like a process. It feels safe to be in the jaws of the system. There's a one in four chance of survival. Someone's got to be the one, don't they? So, tell me about your day. Um, um we did um, I started in the circle and we went up to the deeper. Thirtieth of June. Russell's just been through the first week of chemo. It was like the apocalypse. The chemotherapy they're giving him is a drug called cisplatin. They pump it into his system through an IV and it's in a black bag to denote just how poisonous it is. The nurses who have to change the bag do so in protective gowns, gloves and masks. There's nothing subtle about the cancer ward. All they need is a skull and crossbones. He came home tired, but okay. But on the third day after treatment, he went downhill fast. Intense nausea and fatigue meant that eating, drinking, sleeping, talking were all too much. He told me he just wanted to die. Hard to hear from a person with lung cancer.
I rang the hospital and the nurse told me that he really needed to come in and be put on a saline drip to rehydrate him. She also told me this was not a possibility as all the beds were taken. She suggested water with a teaspoon of sugar and salt in lieu of the saline drip. He couldn't face it. A week after the first dose, he had to go in again. This time it was just for an hour for a drug that's not as toxic as the cisplatin. Except it wasn't an hour because we'd forgotten that we had to go in early to get his blood checked to see if he was up for it. While we were waiting, I found the doctor and told him how sick Russell had been. I told him about the five kilo weight loss, the nausea. And he nodded his head and I realised that none of this was shocking him. It's standard on the cancer ward. On the drive out from the cancer centre, you pass the new maternity hospital. And when I see those couples coming out of the building with their new babies, I feel a shock of envy at the idea of being in hospital for something so wonderful. I wonder at the idea of building a place for new life so close to a building that's not exactly dedicated to the end of life, but certainly to the intense tussle for it. But maybe birth and parenthood is a tussle of its own. Sixth of July. When I'm on my lunch break at work, I sometimes see a woman who hangs around the streets with a fluffy white dog in a stroller asking for money. If you tell her you can't help, she says, So you'd rather see me and my dog out on the streets, would you? And you say, Well, no, but I don't have any cash. And she starts yelling, and you're sort of stuck. <laughs> She trapped me the other day as I was walking back with my coffee and she did her thing and I told her that I honestly didn't have any money. She started laying into me and eventually I said, quietly, shakily, my husband has lung cancer. She looked at me for a moment and said, I don't even have a fucking husband, you bitch. Thirteenth of July. A friend emailed this week and asked me if I needed some help. Lots of people have asked the same question and I felt too confused and too tired to answer properly. But there in the email she'd listed all the things that people might be able to do for me. And she offered to coordinate their efforts. For the first time I could see a way through trying to do this by myself. I sent an email out to some Glebe locals telling them what I needed and within a few hours I had dinners organised, help with the girls, lifts to chemo treatments for Russell on the days I have to work, an online account for shopping, two cleaners and a Google calendar to keep everyone up to date. I'm not sure if Russell quite realises that the house is now being run from a few strategic points in the inner west. Apparently, just like a child, it takes a village to organise cancer treatment. I'm grateful, really, but it's hard, too, because you give up your ideas about being able to manage regardless, about being the perfect mother and wife. If only I were stronger, calmer, better, I could do this. But, of course, being able to let go of those ideas is part of this process. We need help. And even though surrendering might be difficult... It's less difficult than trying to push through alone. Love, Soph. 
20th of July. I said to him the other day that he needed to drink up his sugary, salty water solution I'd prepared to keep his hydration and electrolyte levels up. Yeah, 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 he snapped. Do you talk that way to the nurses, I asked. No, but I don't love the nurses. It's not exactly champagne and roses, but it helped me to remember that I'm not a nurse and that with all the caring and managing of this illness, I am in fact loved. At the centre of this mess is us, two people who love each other, and with us are two children who are frightened, but who essentially just love their dad. And there's a man who's not a patient, but my husband, and their father. We're accepting all positive thoughts and vibes and prayers. Thank you for your continuing emails, texts and calls. If you hear nothing back from me, please know it's not through a lack of appreciation. Twenty-seventh of July. This week Russell was admitted to hospital with a temperature. The doctors had said that a fever meant that he had to come into emergency in case it meant that he'd picked up some sort of infection. People had told me that this is fairly par for the course, but I never thought it would happen to us. I think it's like childbirth. People tell you it hurts just when you have your ears blocked with your fingers and you're singing loudly, la, 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 and then it hurts and you can't believe the pain. I guess I didn't want to know. He stayed in overnight in the hospital and the next morning he was desperate to come home. He hadn't slept, he was panicked and frightened and he didn't want another night like that. The doctor had been to see him saying that to leave would be against medical advice. Russell wanted me to bust him out. I told Russell that I thought he should stay. I could see he felt betrayed. We didn't talk much. Mum brought the girls in for a visit. Anna put on a hospital gown and did a fabulous performance of a sick person. Claire looked uncomfortable and sad, even though he held her tight. In trying to explain why he was in hospital, Russell said to Anna, I think what happened is I just caught your cold. As soon as he said it, he wanted to take it back. I wanted to tell her that it wasn't her cold at all, that special tests came back and showed... I don't know... <laughs> I don't want to lie to her. The fact is, she had a cold, and he may have caught it, but he may have caught it from anyone. Or maybe it was just a spike in his temperature, and really, it doesn't matter. I've tried to put her mind at ease, that no one blames her, but I can see it working through her brain, and I hope she can let it go. I did say that Grandma also had a cold, and it may have been that. She felt OK blaming Grandma. Sorry, Mum. 
10th of August. Our life is pretty good, said Russell. On our way back from lunch on the harbour, the sun shining and the taste of good coffee on our lips. You get to go to lunch, and every night someone comes and brings you dinner. You get to play on the iPad all day. Lots of people babysitting the kids. Shame about the lung cancer. Seventeenth of August. Lying in bed at night. You can smell the chemo treatment. Heavy metals leaching out of his system. He feels awful. And I've been saying stupid things like, You seem better than yesterday. Or last week. Because I'm willing it to be true. And I'm trying to be positive. But I know there's a fine line between being positive and irritating and I don't want him to feel I'm dismissing how bad he feels, partly because I'm not dismissing how bad he feels and partly because I wish I could. Claire has an aching shoulder. I've tried to massage it, but she doesn't want me to touch it. I think it's the same tension and fear that I see behind her eyes. But I can't push her to give me the answer that I want or to talk to me. I ask her about her dad and she mumbles that it's all fine. Then she leaves the room. Twenty fifth of August. Russell has been managing his nausea with steroids, which doesn't endear him to anyone. He gets into this awful mood around six at night, and the girls and I find it really difficult to manage. It lasts a couple of hours, and though there's no fist through the walls or smashing of plates, his gruffness and bad temper is very hard to take. He's got a sharpness and a curl of the lips that we find painful. A few nights ago, after a spat about who may have changed the settings on the iPad... Anna and I went for a walk and she said, I wish he wasn't so sick. I was glad she'd connected his terrible mood to his illness, although I really wish she'd stop changing the settings on the iPad. And while we're on being angry, could I have an egg flip? He croaked. You smoked for 20 years. Make your own goddamn egg flip. Did I say that out loud? No, I didn't. I got him the egg flip. And I got it for him because he's sick. Truly sick. And he has done so much for me and I owe him. And I love him and I'd walk miles over broken glass if I could make him well again. But I am angry. I'm angry at him for smoking and at tobacco companies and those people who sit outside the cancer centre smoking. Really? The cancer centre? You can't do it somewhere else? I'm angry at all the 90-year-olds who smoke a pack a day and have nothing wrong with their lungs and with the doctors who can't make this better. I'm angry that our lives will never be the same and that part of him is lost. 5th of September. Hi, all. Some of you know that the last test results were not good and that the chemo Russell went through didn't work. The 
cancer has spread through the lymph nodes in the lung. Since getting this news, writing these updates, which has given me so much focus, suddenly seems undoable. Russell is much better at this than I am. He's a step-by-step man and just keeps going. I feel like I'm in shock once again, the way I did when we found out he had cancer. And the pain in my chest that I developed is back. It feels corny to say that it's a broken heart, but that's what it feels like. When the doctor told us, Russell took the information in, nodded his head, asked sensible questions. I stood up and paced the room like some sort of trapped and wounded animal. They told us that radiotherapy will start in a few weeks. Russell's hanging on to it. Claire turned 11 the other day. She's keeping this deep within her and she won't talk about it, doing her best to ignore it. But on her birthday, she was so very fragile, so very little. And with all the gifts we gave her, it didn't change the fact that her father might be dying. Love, Sophie. Third of October. Anna held a fruit kebab stall on the main road to raise money for her dad's chemo. I asked her not to say it was for his chemo. I hope she didn't. At least she didn't make the sign, please help my daddy's chemo, spelt K-E-M-O, that she wanted to. She raised $7. It cost me $10 in fruit. I let her give her father the cash. It was easier than trying to explain the Medicare system. Fourteenth of October. Dear all, last weekend he and I had a spat. You don't need to know what it was about, but it was my fault. That's right, I picked a fight with a cancer patient. It didn't last long, but it struck me that it was the first argument we've had since this all started. It made me think about how well we've been doing. I'm proud of him. Even in the worst moments, he's known that this is about me and the girls too. And he's been as supportive of me as possible and as active a father as he's been able to be. I'm proud of the girls for their kindness and loveliness towards their father and their help in this. And I'm proud of myself too. But I've managed to grit my teeth a lot and keep this thing afloat. We lie in bed at night and he clings on to me. And sometimes I feel that I can't breathe because his grip is so tight. And I know it's the fear that we both put to one side in the daylight hours that makes him hold me like that. And so I don't sleep. Because while it's unbearable, I can't bear the thought of letting him go. Twenty-seventh of October. Dear all, Claire and Anna are down at Coles with their dad. Even with lung cancer, he manages to shop more efficiently than me, spending less time and money, 
getting the stuff we actually need. I hate supermarkets, but he enjoys the weekly shopping when he's feeling up to it. I think it suits his sense of order. He likes to take the kids too, and I tend to think that he should be spending time with them watching the ocean or teaching them how to shape things out of blocks of wood. Because isn't this the time you're supposed to be talking in profound metaphors? And then I let all that go. Because he is such a good father and such a good man that if a memory is made in the frozen food section of Broadway Coles, then those children are very lucky. I'll let you into a bit of a secret, Beasy. The whole point of best and worst is to prompt conversation. It's not actually about listing off best and worst. <laughs> oh, my best boys. You shouldn't do that. I reckon your best would have been the lovely burn you had after all the exercise you did yesterday. No, that wasn't it. Um, good. One, two. 21st of November. Russell and I had our 10-year anniversary last night. We went to a fancy restaurant and I almost wouldn't go because it felt so false. But he insisted. And he had some extra morphine to keep his pain in check. And we drank champagne. And I thought, you can take both. You can hold sadness and celebration in your hands and get through. And that's what we did. It was full of tears and laughter, mainly laughter. We talked about what wonderful fun we've had together. Because we have had a great deal of fun. He had his last day of radiation today and there's a test to see if it worked early next week. Love, S. Twenty-seventh of November. Dear all, we've got the results of the last test and they're not good. It looks as though this is Russell's last summer. Unless. He's having a biopsy next week to see if his cancer has a certain genetic mutation that can be dealt with by a specific drug. This would make the outlook very different. There's only a 5% chance and I don't dare to hope. Russell does. He's realistic, but he does. When we got the diagnosis, I googled and found some statistic that said 25% of lung cancer patients at stage 3 survive five years. And I wrote that someone's got to be the one in four. I no longer think that we'll be the lucky ones. I do believe that any chance makes the biopsy worth it, but I don't believe it'll work. We talk about giving up hope, as if hope has some sort of agency, as if by having hope you can change the outcome. But I don't think that's the case. I have given up hope. But I haven't given up loving him and wishing that I could have him here with us for longer. I have given up hope. But I haven't given up Russell. If 
the biopsy comes up with a negative result, he can go on and have a mild form of chemotherapy, which they explained has very little chance of working and would only extend his life by a few months if it did. He wants it. I've told him that I don't want him to have it, that I don't want him to spend his time sick and hooked up to a drip with that poison in it, because even the chemo light is poison. But he wants it. And I realise that in this marriage I've spent quite a lot of time trying to get my own way, and trying to prove myself right. I was right about having children. I still say I was right about the dog, despite the way she smells. I'm sure I was right that the kitchen cupboards I wanted were more practical than the ones he wanted and that we ultimately bought. But I don't care about being right about the chemo. And I will be there with him, right beside him, and I will be willing it to work, because what he wants, he can have. A friend of ours spoke to Russell yesterday, just after we got the news. After they talked about what this all meant, Tony asked him what he was going to do now. A load of washing, said Russell. One step in front of the other. One load of washing at a time. Love, S. P.S. Russell would like to make it clear that the kitchen cupboards we have were a compromise decision and that they are perfectly acceptable. Because, you know, that's the important part of the update. Second of December. We visited palliative care, where we had to wait for three hours to see his doctor. He made some terrible jokes about dying to see her. It's almost summer holidays, and usually we unwind right now. I stop yelling at the children about their homework, let them watch more telly than usual, take them out of school early and go to the beach. This year, the unwinding just feels like unravelling. Sixth of January, 2012. Dear all, you may remember that there was one more treatment option for Russell. He was tested to see if the cancer was a genetic fit for a new drug that would help kill it off. It was a 5% chance, and we got the results a couple of days ago. It was negative. This is the end of the road. And I thought I'd been so sensible, knowing that it was only a 5% chance and not getting my hopes up, proceeding as if it wasn't even a possibility. When they told us, I felt like the earth was swallowing us whole. It seems that hope will blindside you at every turn. Then we had to tell the girls. Claire curled up in a very small ball and cried and cried and cried. And she went to her room and cried some more. Anna cried too, but she got lost in it quite quickly and doesn't understand what it really means. She asks constant questions about whether we can be sure he'll die, whether we can keep him alive until after her birthday because she'll be nine and big enough then. She asks about the funeral and where it will be and what we'll do at the funeral. It's exhausting.
11th of January. He's so pale and not eating much at all. His hands are cold. He's so very sad. He says he's in denial and I think he is, but if you can talk about denial, you can't be in fairyland. And I think his sense of reality is good. We've talked about it and both agree that it's simply impossible to imagine your life without you in it. How would he start? I can imagine it and I'm terrified a lot of the time. I feel angry a lot of the time. But like Anna, I find myself asking concrete questions about getting through this. Like how to get the kids to school every day. And managing childcare and the shopping. I wrote out possible weekly dinner menus with lots of strategies for using leftovers. I cry a lot. Usually alone. I love him so much. Eighteenth of January. Dear all, we had an appointment with the oncologist yesterday. He told us there'd be no more chemo, no more treatment. He was quite firm on this. I'm sure it's because he's used to the last appointments and the begging, the demands for one last shot at a miracle cure. But we were not there to beg. Russell asked whether we'd see him again. He said no. It felt like a last date before a very civilised and mutually agreed-to breakup. And now I watch my very best friend fall away from me. I see the way people look at him. The way we used to look at the gaunt faces in Cancerland with a mixture of sympathy and horror and hope that it doesn't happen to you. I bought irises today. The first flowers he bought me 16 years ago. As I put them in the vase, I thought of him in his navy blue suit and tie, because he wore ties in those days. Coming around to the share house I lived in and making me laugh and lecturing me on Jimi Hendrix. I remembered how from the very start I loved him. And in his lovely brown eyes, I see that man. And in my children, I see him too. I'll miss him. And I miss him already. Because there are parts of him that have already gone. Love, Soph. Thirtieth of January. Dear all, Russell's eating a diet of ice cream, watermelon, chicken and egg flips. We eat around that. School starts again tomorrow and I'm looking forward to the structure it gives us. I keep thinking of all the times I've looked at other people in this situation and thought there is no way on God's earth I could do that. And here I am, doing it. 
He has such a sour smell to him and is so very weak and needs so much. The girls need me too because, of course, they need their mother at a time like this. So I feel like I'm being pulled in three different directions. So I keep waiting for this to be over. Which is a very hard thing to think because it's only over when he's gone. And that's why this is almost undoable. Seventh of February. Dear all. Every night lying in bed, Russell says how frightened he is to go to sleep because he may not wake up. And I say he will wake up because I'm fairly certain that he will and because I think it's the only thing to say. And through the night, I check to see that he's still breathing. And when I hear his voice in the morning, I feel real and surprised relief. I don't want him to die. But I hold that in one hand and in the other the knowledge that we simply can't go on like this. It's no way to live frightened of the morning. And regardless of what I want, my husband will die anyway. I don't know when, and we can't make plans, and we can't change the way it's going to go. Anna has her funeral outfit hanging on a coat hanger in the hallway. We are ready, but not really. Not really. Love, Soph. Eleventh of February. Dear all, my darling Russell died last night. He'd had a great week. He got the tree in the back garden cut back. He got some stuff tidied up. He and my mother finished writing all the details of his life down for the girls. He didn't get the haircut he'd planned, and he didn't figure out a way to store the bikes out the back. But I think mostly things were pretty much complete for him. He slipped into a coma on Friday and never came to. He felt no fear and no pain, and friends and family gathered around. His three girls, Anna, Claire, and I, were with him on his bed when he died. He died with class and a minimum of fuss. Eight months of cancer treatment and all the pain that goes with it, you don't focus on what it feels like to lose someone. There's too much to do, I suppose. Now I feel full to the brim with the lack of him. I'll be in touch about the funeral arrangements soon. Love, Soph. My best. was going on the walk with baby and my worst oh maybe you should go and do a massage with you no I, I would so take that opportunity uh, they're not allowed to massage people 
go to a video? Yes, they are. But no, yes, they are. The updates from Australian producer Sophie Townsend for ABC's Radio National. Engineering and music by Louis Mitchell. Sophie's updates were read by Gabrielle Rogers. We felt so strongly about this story, we tweeted its praises. Sarah Curtis, an American producer whose recent work is also deeply raw and personal, responded right away. Knowing how much these producers had in common, Third Coast brought them together for a conversation about the role grief plays in their work. Grief is so big. I have at times felt a little embarrassed by it. You know, I imagine myself in um, a black dress, just, you know, with a whole pile of tape as the sort of radio widow. And um, is that all I can do? Is that all I can say? But actually, it's it's kind of a profound new way of looking at the world for me. And I think it is okay to keep going with it. Yeah, it's like keep going with it until it just doesn't serve you anymore or serve your work anymore. Yeah. Personal grief is so fiery and it's so like yeah. uh, visceral. I find it disorienting and I also find it really um, enlivening. It is It is enlivening. There is something. Um, it's like riding one of those enormous waves at the beach. It's so strong and just takes you into so many places. Yeah, you don't know where you're going to wind up. I'm just so happy that I can channel that in work. Yeah. One other thing that I love about your piece um, is, I call it the kitchen table scene. Is that, I don't know if it was the kitchen table, but where there's Ambi of family at the table. Yeah. Like, to me, that was like the breathing room in this in the piece. Mm. We'd be going along and hearing other things and like bad news and like the almost like science fiction like sound in the hospital. Mm. I love the contrast between all of those things. And I'm wondering, is that did you collect that sound at the table with your family? Yeah. So we um as soon as he got sick, I started recording dinners and he was really annoyed by it, actually, because um, I think he'd always felt that he would survive this. So he didn't want me to start memorialising him while he was at the table. So I actually didn't get as much as I wanted. Um, but, yeah, so I've only got a few of those dinners. But um, I was really glad that I had them having those those girls' voices in it my girls' voices, um, cemented what it was all about. I loved it. Like, I would hear that sort of music coming, and I'm like, oh, I get to go back to the table. Mm. Like, I don't know, it was like weird safe space or something, like before mm. another last of intensity was going to come. To have that sound, like that everyday life sound archived is so special. And in terms of, like, mm. the structure of the piece and how, you know, the art came out, I feel like it's so complete. And I I hear him, I don't know, I hear him in the way that you describe him. And you, like, made him very alive for the listener. So. 
Sophie Townsend and Sarah Brooke Curtis, talking about Sophie's story, The Updates. Coming up after the break, we'll listen to a story Sarah created while also working through profound grief. And we'll have more of her conversation with Sophie Townsend. Stay with us. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Each week on ReSound, we share the best audio stories we discover from around the world and then carefully design a listening experience around them that will intrigue, inform, and inspire. There is something about really going through grief where it's just like there's no trying to be comfortable within yourself. Today, we're listening to the pursuits of two producers who've created work born out of their experiences with grief. American producer Sarah Brooke Curtis and Australian producer Sophie Townsend. Both were admirers of each other's work, so we decided to play matchmaker and bring them together for some exchange about their stories and their process. We heard Sophie's story, The Updates, earlier in the hour, and now we're about to listen to one of Sarah's. It's called Ask Me. It's a slow burn of an essay about the most simple of exchanges that can sometimes, as Sarah says, save us from ourselves. Three nights in a row, I have the same bus driver, and three nights in a row, I needed her. The first night, I've been walking on the beach the way that I do lately. First, walking really fast, faster than my mind can move. Into my body, out of my mind that fast. Walking so fast that people are probably looking at me and wondering what it is I'm running from. Then once I get to this certain point on the beach and can feel and hear my heart pumping, my cheeks get all warm and rosy and I slow down and begin looking around at all of the shapes gathered in the sand. All of the beautiful and sad things around me. So many sad things. Half-buried dead birds, chipped sand dollars, slimy seaweed wound in circles, crushed crab shells. Smells like fire. Half-burnt pages of a novel fanned around some gangly pieces of charred-up firewood. Plastic bags wrapped around seashell-studded rope. Purple birthday ribbon knotted up with pokey pelican feathers, fishing poles reaching out to sea at all the right angles, and more and more of those dead birds, picked apart skeletons and decomposing limbs splayed out like they were in the middle of some tragic mating dance. I follow matted down feather trails, layered in the footprints of a large man's shoe. There are so many perfect accidental arrangements of things. I see little stories written all over this beach and I keep track of them. Winding my way around these things, magnetized by some invisible labyrinth, like I'm sleuthing out the scene of a series of little crimes and victories. I watch all the strangers and I'm especially curious about those that walk alone like me. When they're old and a little hunched, I imagine they are recently widowed, walking while the sun goes down to avoid an unfamiliar stretch of dinnertime loneliness. 
I listen to couples laughing in little heaps surrounded by an empty bottle of Prosecco and strewn off hoodies. I listen to babies crying in baby carriers clutched so closely to their parents' heart. I stomp on dried up crab shells because I like this satisfying sound they make and it reminds me a little bit of heartbreak. I look out at the ocean waves mounting and crashing and sputtering. Some days I just stare at the foam lapped up on the shore in puffs just jiggling in the breeze. Where does that foam come from anyways and why does it look like a dirty dog bath? After a while the waves sound fuzzy and throbbing. My ears get a little cold and I wrap my head in a scarf. I pick up a piece of crusty, hardened seaweed to scratch my daughter's name into the wet sand, deep enough for each letter to well up like a little moat. My nose drips and my hair gets tangly and wild in my face. I watch the sun start to go down. I see you everywhere. When I see purple, when I see red, or when it's just unfathomably and intensely perfect, I see her. Sweetheart, I see you. Sometimes I twirl around delighted by the insane beauty and predictability of the sun setting over the Pacific Ocean. I look all around me and hope to God that other people who are going through this are seeing the sunset over the ocean too. If you are, please go. I promise you it will help. Okay, back to the bus driver and that first night. So I had to pee and was hungry for dinner and there was a bus leaving in four minutes and not another one for a half hour. And I was ways away, so I just kind of gave up and sauntered back, thinking I would have to catch the later one. But when I climbed up over the dune, the bus was just sitting there, like it was waiting just for me. That first night, the bus driver was on her phone, looking out at the ocean, tracing circles on the pavement with her brightly colored pumas. When she was ready to go, I stepped my sandy feet onto the bus, and we were the only ones on there. I sat towards the back, feeling kind of shy, and though we couldn't see each other, I felt just connected to her, like we were old friends headed out on a long drive. I told her how electric pink the sunset was and how glittery the ocean looked. She told me that she liked to throw her worries into the waves, and when she does so, she feels connected to everyone and everything. She then laughed this slow, soft laugh, as if bemused by the abstraction in her thinking and the very fact that she was sharing her thinking with a stranger. I decided not to habitually press my earbuds into my ears this time and instead listen to her voice, be open to some kind of connection. We talked about how the ocean puts everything into perspective and makes us feel small but full. That first night, I just wanted to tell her everything about me. We had two stops alone before anyone got on. But at the next stop, people began filling the bus. I was a little sad and a little relieved. Our conversation switched to baseball and the Giants being in the playoffs and if she thought the Royals were going to make a comeback. I wanted her to ask me about my life. I wanted to turn just like inside out on the bus. When I get off at my stop, 
I leave from the front door because I want to make eye contact with her and just say thank you. So that's what I do. The second night, when I hiked up over the dune, the bus that was supposed to have left long before was still there. And yes, it was the same bus driver. She welcomed me on. She started telling me about her life. She told me about her trip to Paris last year and how her husband loves to take pictures and has a good eye for angles. It kind of didn't matter what she said because her voice was just so calming to me. I felt like curling up on the seat and just purring like a damn cat. I was holding this heart-shaped rock that washed up at my feet. I don't mean one of those rocks that vaguely could be a heart if you wanted it to be. I mean a perfect, smooth heart just washed up at my feet. So perfect that I looked around and felt strongly like someone had to have planted it there just for me to find. So on the second night in a row, I'm listening to this bus driver and just moving the heart-shaped rock back and forth between my hands as she talks. Again, no one gets on the bus for two stops and I hope she will ask me about my life. I hope she will ask me if I'm a parent I want so much to be able to say, yes, I am a mother just like you. I want to tell her that despite what she sees, I am totally transformed and I just need to tell someone. This is not a dream. I need to tell her. Then eventually people start getting on the bus again. Um, Teenagers, nurses, middle-aged zookeeper with braces, a girl who just keeps counting and counting. So this time when I get off the bus, I decide to show her my rock, like a kid showing off her missing first tooth. And she just got this huge smile on her face and said, Oh, that is beautiful. You are so lucky. I laughed a little like, yeah, maybe I am lucky in the moment. So the third night, the bus was waiting there again, and yes, it was her with her brightly colored pumas. She was standing outside the bus watching the last little bit of sun seep into the ocean, and I was doing the same. My back was to her, and we were both just looking out over the horizon, feet deep in the sand. Eventually, I heard her start up the bus, open the doors, and say, Are you ready? Come on in. I awkwardly ran towards her in slow motion, in that way you do when trying to push your limbs through sand uphill. I decided to sit in one of those side seats that face the driver that only the talkers usually sit in, you know those seats? It was just us again. She told me that right before I showed her my heart-shaped rock the night before, she had been thinking about how much God loves us and how God is so good and how she has so much to be grateful for. She told me how the timing of her thoughts with my shared heart-shaped rock was perfect, just another example of God's love. She asks me how long I've lived in the Bay Area. I tell her eight years, and she recognizes that I must really like it if I've lived here that long. I tell her, yes, I do, but my family is mostly all on the East Coast, and I miss them dearly. I'm thinking, yes, we're talking about family. Just just ask me, please, ask me, dearest, God-loving bus driver. And then eventually, people start filling up the bus, and we go back to discussing the Giants, and if we think they're going to win the World Series that night, and we start imagining the different types of crazy that the city will become, depending on the outcome. 
And then when we are half a block from my stop, she asks, So do you have any kids? I get chills, and I stand up and hold on to the pole and get close to her and say, Well, yes, I mean, I, I had a baby girl at the end of August, but she was born terminally ill, and um, she died three days later. And I know that's a lot to put on you, and that you're just my bus driver. I know I have to get off the bus because it's my stop, and this is a lot, but um, that's why I've been walking the beach that night and savoring the sunsets like it's my lifeline. And uh, she looked me in the eyes and said, You're going to be okay. God loves you. Yes, it is a lot. But you're going to be okay. I'll be seeing you soon, you hear? And I say okay and thank you so much. And I get off the bus and let out this huge sigh. And she just like honks her way down the hill. And you see, she wasn't saying it in that dreaded, it's all in God's plan kind of a way. No mother grieving the loss of her child wants to hear that. I really felt like she believed I was going to be okay and that the God she believed in believed that too. And I believed in her, so I was entirely grateful. I still go to the beach almost every single night, but I haven't seen her since. Ask Me by Sarah Brooke Curtis for Unfictional from KCRW. This was just one of many stories Sarah made while dealing with the loss of her daughter. In talking to Sophie Townsend, who produced the updates that we played in the first half of the show, she said that she produced her story six months after her husband Russell died. Sarah said she needed to start working much sooner after the death of her daughter. Lilia was born on August 24th of 2014, and she died on August 27th of 2014. And um, everything just felt really upside down as you kind of feel like you're in a weird dream Mm. and um, I was trying to do as many things as I could to ground me and also I needed to allow myself to surrender to how absolutely crazy and maddening life was feeling Um, and I said I need to do something brave for myself that feels like it's the marking of a new chapter and where I can channel my creative energy because I think um, something that people probably don't understand is that when you have a baby you've like created life and normally you have a child and you're channeling all that creativity and nurturing maternal energy into the baby and when you don't have that you're still left with all that creative drive like I needed to nurture something and make Mm. something I think I think you capture that in the piece that the sounds and the um, cracking crab shells. That's a sound I really um, connected with. You, it, it brought back that hyper reality of grief. Where you know, I remember that feeling of 
of knowing when I was sweating and and feeling my skin against certain fabrics and um you know I think there's such a heightened awareness of the world when you're grieving and listening to your piece brought that right back you feel connected with every physical thing and yet you're actually very alone right yes and I think I suppose one of the things I wonder about when I'm uh, making pieces about Russell and his sickness and death is um, why am I doing this you know is this therapy I think probably Americans are better at at this sort of stuff than Australians you know we're very um, reticent to talk about our experiences we don't do first person narrative as naturally as Americans and I guess listening to Ask Me I felt something so deep and and I think everyone feels grief and there's something about the personal narrative that um, is so detailed and intense and um, it's that detail in the um, in the descriptions of what's going on in your head and in the world, and I, I, I guess um, I just I feel very grateful for your piece because it made me think. Yes, this there is a point to this, and there is this is important work. Oh man, thank you. I felt the same. I mean, I feel I really feel the same way listening to your work. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been so, what a treat. Sophie, wow, here yeah. you are. Yeah, it's <laughs> fantastic. Producers Sophie Townsend and Sarah Brooke Curtis in conversation about their work that you heard today on ReSound, the updates, and Ask Me. Both Sarah and Sophie have expansive bodies of wonderful radio stories relating to this time in their life and much lighter fare. To hear these great pieces, including Sarah's 2015 award-winning short doc, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today's episode was produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.